News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It was widely anticipated yesterday when we started to hear from some people in charge during the years that money laundering really ran rampant in our gaming institutions and casinos in this province. It was the day that former BC Premier Christy Clark was going to be testifying at the Cullen Commission. Turned out to be an incredibly busy day news-wise, right? There was so much going on. There was the BC budget, which we're also going to talk about later today. Uh, There was all sorts of news happening, and then you had this testimony as well. And from what we heard yesterday... The B.C. Liberal government did everything it could to deal with money laundering in our province. That's according to the former Premier, Christy Clark. The Cullen Commission heard that testimony, and they're going to be hearing more from a series of high-profile witnesses. But it started first with the former Premier. Global B.C.'s John Hua has more. The fact criminals were targeting casinos to launder their dirty cash. I so swear. I so swear. Was already on Christy Clark's radar when she began her reign as BC Premier. Well, I was very concerned about it. I mean, money laundering is a significant problem. And it happens inside casinos and it happens outside casinos and it fuels organized crime. The leader of the former BC Liberal government from 2011 to 2017 told the Cullen Commission she had open communication with her cabinet and made it clear money laundering was a concern. When I said get it done, I knew that they were getting it done because they were they were following up. But when pressed by commission counsel, there was plenty. The former premier didn't seem to know about the increase in suspicious funds being funneled into BC casinos. Did you know that patrons were regularly buying in for six figures predominantly in $20 bills? No. Clark also stated she didn't know that betting limits were raised up to $100,000 a hand or that suspicious cash at casinos was being reported, but not refused. Did you ask whether this money that was reported as suspicious was accepted by casinos and ultimately gamed with and subsequently contributed to the provincial revenue or whether it was refused? Did you make that inquiry? I didn't. What is unclear whether Clark noticed the substantial increase in casino contributions to government coffers considering the close attention she said was paid to the provincial books. It is a daily exercise within the Ministry of Finance, seeing where we're at with various parts of government. Are we on budget? Are we off budget? Still, Clark told the commission she thought appropriate action was taken, which started with the swift implementation of all of the recommendations from the 2011 Croker report, except for the formation of a joint casino task force. My assumption is just because of the complexity of bringing all those agencies together. Despite those changes, the amount of suspicious cash being dumped at casino cages continued to climb at an alarming rate. That's not something that was uh, discussed with you by your ministers? No. Clark told the commission she wasn't made aware of the huge spike in suspicious funds until 2015. The Minister of Finance, who was responsible for gaming, came to me and said, hey, we have a problem that's been reported to me, and I I want to do more. Doing more meant rushing to form that joint casino task force, first recommended back in 2011. My recollection is that Minister DeYoung brought all the ministries together, identified the focus, found the funding for it within about two weeks. Clark told the commission that move happened quickly because DeYoung showed the will to act. Begging the question, what more could have been done when suspected casino money laundering was reaching its peak? During a four-year period that falls under the former Premier's watch. 
John Hua, Global News. Interesting testimony. I think a lot of people would say, wait a minute, it sure didn't seem like as much was being done as the former premier suggested there. We have yet to hear from the former finance minister, Mike DeYoung, that was mentioned there. Also, the other person who was in charge during that time, uh, former minister Rich Coleman. And we're waiting to hear from him as well, who he also will be testifying in the next week or two. So definitely more to come on that. This is Mornings with Simi. So Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer, has been found guilty of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. By now, I know most people have seen the video, the way officers, including Chauvin, knelt on George Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes during that arrest almost one year ago, May 25th of last year. And the verdict came just after a day or so. This was the second day of jury deliberations. How significant is this? It certainly felt like there was a collective holding of breath while the United States was waiting for this verdict to come out. Joining us now to talk about the historic nature of it is Alan J. Lichtman, American historian, teaches at American University in Washington, D.C., also author of the book, The Case for Impeachment. Thank you for joining us this morning. My great pleasure. Did you get that sense as well yesterday that there was this kind of holding of the breath waiting to find out what the verdict was? Absolutely. This verdict is of great importance. It is not sufficient, but it was a necessary element for fundamental police reform that deals with systematic racism in the United States. Think about this. You had that horrific nine minute and 29 second video. You had all of the resources of the state of Minnesota devoted to convicting this one police officer. You had the testimony of virtually every senior official in the Minneapolis police department. There was no blue wall of defense here. If the prosecution could not have gotten a conviction in this case, then the message would have been to the police, you can do anything. You can do anything you want with absolutely no consequences and no retribution. Obviously, a very different message has been sent, but far more needs to be done, obviously. Right. How did this case become so significant, Alan? Like, how is it that you said, you know, everybody, all, all the offices, all the law enforcement offices were helping in this case? How did it get to that point? I think you've got to give the citizens enormous credit. As the uh, prosecutor said, there were these ordinary people who just happened to be on that corner in front of Cup Foods at that moment. You know, an elderly gentleman, a child, uh, young people, white and black, a martial arts expert. And they saw, they witnessed you know, exactly what was going on, a man, a police officer, for no reason, choking the life out of someone, and they took the video. Absent that video, this would not have been such an iconic case. But that video really epitomized not just the brutality of what Chauvin did, but his utter disregard for the consequences of his action. You know, the defense attorney said, you know, why would a police officer do this when he knew he was being filmed? Well, the answer is he was so arrogant that he believed he would face no consequences. 
the trial shows that's no longer true. Is this a lesson in our police departments, do you think, learning from this? I mean, just the initial even press release that they sent out about this situation is so different from what we saw on the video. Is there a lesson there that the police forces are taking? I think the police forces are taking this very seriously. You know, but, you know, at the same time that this was going on, we saw other killings by police of of black people, including, you know, nearby the police officer who thought she was firing a taser and killed uh, a young black man with her service weapon at point blank range for, you know, a minor traffic stop. We saw the 13-year-old killed in Chicago. So, yes, I think a message has been sent, but we still await how much substantive change we're going to see. Now, Alan, given, you know, American history, looking back, is this how things change in the United States? Is there usually like a, a flashpoint, a moment like this that causes that movement to happen? I think that's absolutely right. Uh, look at how we got perhaps the most important piece of legislation in American history, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The flashpoint was the Birmingham demonstrations when Martin Luther King went to Birmingham and Bull Connor sent his police forces to brutally beat uh, peaceful demonstrators. And it was like this trial, like the video, televised across the land, you know, in many ways, the first uh, televised brutalization of black people. Without that, we might not have gotten the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Isn't that interesting, though, as you put it out, the televising of that moment resulted in that, and really the broadcasting, the video of of this moment with George Floyd also resulted in this change. It is, I guess, people have to get angry before that happens. People have to get angry. They have to see it. It has to come into their living room. That's why uh, it is so important that ordinary citizens, like the folks we saw in Minneapolis, you know, take it upon themselves to bear witness to these events and memorialize them with, with, with their cell phone cameras. This is, you know, something new, just as what happened in the 60s was something new. So given that it's been a year now, is so our police forces across the country, are they watching this? Will we see a change, do you think, in how they treat situations like this? I, I, I think we will. You know, one thing the Obama excuse me, the Biden administration has done was uh, eliminate the Trump administration's blockage of consent decrees with uh, local police forces. We're going to see a resurgence of those. Interesting. Okay, so then this is the way American history then goes then, Alan, doesn't it? It is these cases that brings it right home for, for Americans sitting at home watching this unfold. Yes, indeedy. Gotta go. Take care. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Alan. That is Alan J. Lichtman, American historian. He teaches at American University in Washington, D.C. Uh, he, he's also very well known for being the one person who predicted the election of Donald Trump. You may remember, you probably heard a lot about him, but just look him up and you'll see that, yes, he is very well known uh, for his political predictions as well. And his take on this is this is a very significant moment in American history uh, that will be, you know, the impetus for change moving forward. This is Mornings with Simi. 
We are breaking down the BC budget yesterday. Joining us now for more on that is Dr. Paul Kershaw, who is with the University of British Columbia's School of Population and Public Health and the Master of Public Health Program. Thanks for being back with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get your reactions to to what you heard. What what did you think of the BC budget? Well, I must confess that I find myself a bit conflicted in commenting on the budget because on the one hand, you should interpret a budget in the context of, you know, what the government has done already. And on that front, for things like key affordability issues like childcare and housing, one has to concede that this government has put in place better childcare policy and uh, a better housing policy plan than did the previous government. But But. (laughs) being better than the previous government is simply not good enough any longer. And we are in the middle of a pandemic that has showcased just how important issues like childcare are and why we need to still rein in housing prices. And yesterday's provincial budget didn't live up to what we would have expected. On the childcare side, I would say most... uh, most concern is the fact that in the, the last election, just a few months ago, this government promised to inject $1.25 billion over the next couple of years into child care. That was the promise, really clear in the platform. And they delivered less than one-sixth of that yesterday. And so that means thousands and thousands of families during the pandemic and as we try and build back better are going to be struggling with child care costs that are equivalent to another rent or mortgage-sized payment on top of already higher uh, housing prices. And I guess that's the second thing. In previous budgets with the NDP government, you would have heard Finance Minister Carol James talk about moderating house prices and kind of being pleased with some moderation. That was kind of like political speak for like, we don't want them to go up too much uh, because that erodes affordability. But we lost that in yesterday's budget. And that surprised me because Minister Robinson is the former housing minister. I know that she is concerned about housing response, housing affordability. But it's almost as if yesterday's budget was bragging that, you know, uh, a skir- surging home prices are like buttressing our economy. And that's just not a great way to build an economy and come out of the recession because all it does is once again further erode affordability. Right. So there was kind of a nod to the child care issue, but it sounds like they're kind of waiting for the federal government to do more. Yeah, I guess that's the most charitable interpretation, and I think let's be charitable. But um, it's it's great that the feds have finally come to the table to inject real dollars for childcare. But it does require an active provincial partner to still bring the ten dollar a day childcare vision alive. And uh, the problem with yesterday's budget is that the BC now doesn't look like it wants to be as active in being a partner as we would have expected during the election campaign. And I got to say, like, I spent the last decade of my life through Gen Squeeze trying to encourage young folks to say voting matters and you got to be able to yeah. trust your politicians. They're good folks. They are. They're working hard. And this deviation between what was promised in the platform and what they actually delivered yesterday just makes it harder to rejuvenate faith in democratic processes. Now, Paul, I was also really surprised by the lack of discussion about housing and affordability. Like, yes, as as I was just talking about with Vaughn Palmer, they did note they're getting way more money out of the property transfer tax and property prices are increasing 11% and 16.5%. So a huge disappointment that they wouldn't even talk about this. Yeah, you know, for the first several years, they did manage to start restoring some affordability in housing prices. We've lost control of that over the last uh, year of the pandemic. And, 
you know, I don't have a problem with the provincial government collecting revenue from housing. In fact, I'd like them to actually do more of that so we can ease the pressure on income taxes for those who are middle earners and lower income earners. But I don't want them to get more taxes if they're not changing any policies to try and slow down the housing market. Then they're just saying, hey, we're comfortable with the status quo. And, you know, other people, regular folks like me, by the way, I have a home that's now worth more than a million and a half dollars. I'm getting richer while I go to sleep. And so is the provincial government. But that's not what we need them to do. We need them to lead and be bold and say housing prices are only healthy when they stall or even fall moderately so that that people's earnings can catch up. I know Minister Robinson uh, is concerned about these things. I was surprised by how little she said yesterday. And it makes Minister Evie's job as the new housing minister much more challenging. Okay, so then looking to the year ahead, though, where they're apparently going to be focused on pandemic recovery, what, what would you tell them to do? What would you tell them to keep in mind? Don't depend on growing the real estate sector as the way to sustain our gross domestic product or grow our economy. Prior to the pandemic, we already had 18% of BC's economy in rental real estate and leasing, but only 2% of folks find employment in that industrial sector. It then is a kind of economic growth strategy. It means like, let's grow our major cost of living without growing employment and numbers in that area that then absorb the, the wealth that's being enjoyed Uh, created and then driving up earnings. And that is exactly the problem. We grow our major cost of living via this strategy, but our earnings aren't keeping up. And so we need to find ways to incentivize people to develop their businesses, develop their company, develop their wealth strategies outside of real estate. And I'm looking for our government to try to incentivize that more and more and to try to expressly say we never want to see home prices rise again over the mandate of this government. All right. We'll be talking with it about it again, I'm sure, with you. Dr. Paul Kershaw, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. One thing we didn't hear a lot about yesterday in the budget is the education system. Like, yes, there was a small increase to keep up with some of the increasing expenses, and it still makes up a huge part of our budget. But a lot of school districts are raising alarms about some problems that they are facing right now. In fact, several school districts around the province say they are facing budget shortfalls. And we are talking multi-million dollar budget shortfalls. And a big reason for that is the COVID-19 pandemic and the lack of international students because that revenue that they generated from international students uh, definitely made a difference. So what's going to be done about all of this? And if you're a parent, should you be concerned? Now, we have put in a request to talk to the education minister about this. Right now, though, we're chatting with Terry Mooring, who's the president of the BC Teachers Federation. Thank you for joining us. For having me, Sumi. Have you been hearing about these concerns? Oh, absolutely, we have been. And I'm not sure that that the budget does much to address them, Uh, including the, you know, really significant teacher shortage that we have right now. You know, there there just isn't much in the budget in terms of proactive investments in education. Yeah, so what kind of cutbacks are you worried about at this point? Like, what have you been hearing? Well, we've been hearing from some school districts around some, um, certainly some program cuts, and this is, you know, absolutely the worst time for something like that to happen. Uh, There are certain programs that keep students in school, music programs, string programs. These are, you know, among some of those, uh, you know, additional programs that really uh, kind of spark the interest of students and and really keep them involved in school. And the last thing that we need coming out of a pandemic is to have these kinds of programs cut. So we have some concerns about that. 
But also the budget doesn't do anything to address the long-term, you know, systemic underfunding of education. Um, districts disproportionately spend more money on students with diverse needs than they take in from the budgets. And, and this doesn't do anything around that. Um, we were really hoping for some significant investments in education, knowing that, you know, the system is going to need to address a lot of of issues, especially around students coming out of the pandemic. And so, you know, we were hoping to see some targeted funding for um, trauma-informed practice training, for anti-oppression, anti-racism training, um, and, you know, and, and the systemic underfunding, as I say, that has been present um, all along. You know, a universal meals program for students, this would have been the time to make these kinds of investments in our school system. Right. But even just the, the some of the programs that you talked about there are ones that I think a lot of parents probably feel like we have been fighting to keep these for years. And now what? They're under threat again? Well, absolutely. In some districts, you know, they uh, ended up being cut, you know, some years ago. And and those are the kinds of things that, you know, really, you know, as I say, keep students in school, uh, keep them motivated and interested. And, and those are vital, uh, especially in moments like these where we're coming out of a situation where, you know, most of our students will have uh, endured some sort of trauma, uh, and so you know this is not this is this would have been the time for some really significant investments, and it's really unfortunate that you know that was definitely a missed opportunity in this budget. But you know, and more to your point, we're also concerned that it's not covering some of the uh, systemic underfunding and some of the shortfalls that districts are saying that they they are going to have moving forward. Yeah, are you worried about what that means for teacher layoffs? I really am, and and so you know, uh, what happens in these situations is that most districts do have class size protections, and so you know, classroom teachers do. You know, there are class sizes, but a lot of the um, specialist positions that support students with diverse needs, uh, those are the ones that don't necessarily have those same protections. So those are the teachers that we worry about. Well, at the same time, however, <laughs> we we have been dealing with this teacher shortage for years now. And there isn't anything there around attracting and recruiting teachers, especially in northern parts of the province. Okay, so th- when do you think is this going to be critical? Is this uh, critical over the next couple of months, or are we, is it, do you think the impact's going to be felt this fall? Well, I, the, yeah, I'm concerned um, about this fall, most definitely. The other thing that, you know, this budget is really missing is, is any sort of dedicated funding for uh, COVID-19 safety protocols for September. We, we still think, you know, students won't be vaccinated in September. There'll still be a need for those safety protocols, including the additional cleaning um, and custodial time. Um, you know, what happened this year is that that additional money that went to custodial time really brought us up to where we should have been all along. Custodial time is an area that's really being cut year over year uh, when budgets have been tight. And so, you know, there isn't anything around those costs that we're concerned are going to be downloaded um, and to districts and, and meaning they're going to be, again, short because of that. You know, the other thing that we were really looking forward to for in this budget was paid sick leave for those that don't have it. So, you know, all workers deserve paid sick leave, especially when we're in a pandemic and coming out of a pandemic. Um, and in our sector, it means teachers teaching on call, they don't have any access to sick leave. And, and teachers teaching on call, just like other precarious workers, um, you know, have to face the choice of going to work sick. 
uh, as opposed to, you know, taking a day um, because they need to pay their bills. And so, again, this is a real disappointment in this budget. All right, we'll find out what happens. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks so much, Simi. That's Terry Morin, president of the BCTF, talking about their concern about potential teacher layoffs, just budget cutbacks that many districts are going to be dealing with very soon. As I mentioned, we've requested to talk to the Minister of Education about that. We'll keep you posted. But to give you an idea, there's a great Globe and Mail story about this earlier in the week uh, that cited these numbers. So to give you an idea of, of what some of these districts are facing, the Surrey School District, and that is a big one. It is the largest school district in the province. It is the fastest growing school district in the province. They're projecting a budget shortfall just in Surrey alone of $43 million. And they're saying that is directly related to the pandemic. That is a decrease in student enrollment numbers because more people didn't arrive in Surrey. Uh, They've had a decrease in facility rental revenue, increased costs. All of that has combined. Also, uh, drop in international students. They had hundreds fewer international students show up this year than they had been anticipating. All of that has resulted in millions of dollars in lost revenue, and they they are now facing like a, it's a huge deficit, right? How do you how do you deal with a projected budget shortfall of forty three million dollars? And the problem is, as we know, school districts they can't carry that over the way governments do, right? They have to meet their budget every year, which means cutting, slashing, and burning until they can make that fit. So yeah, for parents, for teachers, for everybody in the system, this is going to be a concern. So we'll talk more about it because I know many districts are facing a similar situation here. Coquitlam, I think, is another one having some issues from a lack of international students. If you are out there in the system and you are hearing about these concerns or, or this is being, you know, faced, you're facing this, drop me an email. Let me know what's happening. Simi at cknw.com. And we'll be talking more about it. But I feel like for parents, man, this is just another blow, right? You've dealt with enough with your kids in the school system over the past year. And now once again, having to fight for music programs and, you know, extra programs and all that kind of stuff for your kids. It's just going to be yet another battle on that front. This is Mornings with Simi. COVID-19 cases, vaccines, hospitalizations, you name it. There is so much to break down here. Joining us this morning is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Thank you for being here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Also, happy late birthday. It was yesterday, right? Uh, it was yesterday. That's... Was it a quiet one? So It was a good day in some ways. Uh, we saw somewhat fewer cases yesterday than we had the previous day, and our test positivity is coming down a little bit. So those were the, those were the better news. But we're still seeing a very significant increase in hospitalization based on the cases we saw 10 to 14 days ago. Yeah, let's talk a bit about the AstraZeneca vaccine here too. Uh, lowering that age to 40 plus this week, what has the take-up been like? It's been very good. Uh, the first day in, uh, in our Surrey North Delta area and Fraser Health, we had more than 10,000 appointments booked. We had very busy uh, clinics yesterday in Fraser Health in Dawson Creek, which is another area where we see a high level of transmission. We, uh, in the first uh, day, about a thousand appointments were booked in a community of thirteen thousand. That's very significant, and so in we're seeing a, a really important take up. It's obviously a large group of people to draw from, forty and above in BC. If you think of it, each five years, so forty to forty-five is about 
300,000 eligible people. So we would expect a large take-up. But what we've been able to do with this, uh, the AstraZeneca, we've, we've moved into uh, immunization this week, is to focus it on areas where there's high transmission, and that's a good thing. So uh, what is the supply like then of the AstraZeneca vaccine at this point? Well, our, uh, this week and next week, our supply is less of all the vaccines. We're getting about 138,000 doses of Pfizer this week. We're not getting any Moderna this week, and we're not getting any AstraZeneca this week. We do have a supply out with pharmacies right now, and that is being worked through in around 600 pharmacies across BC, and we're setting up these AstraZeneca clinics. So we're going to be busy with AstraZeneca for this week and for next week. After that, uh, it's unclear when the next supply is coming. For Pfizer, we're going to see starting in May double the supply we have now. So we're getting about 138,000 a week now. It'll be 276,000 a week uh, come uh, the first week in May. Okay, so can more people start expecting that email, you know, after they registered to come down and get their vaccination? Absolutely, and uh, that's going regularly in our age-based program as well, which is principally Pfizer and Moderna, or is entirely Pfizer and Moderna. And in that case, um, we're moving down the age cohorts, uh, and I, I suspect next week we'll be into uh, people in their 50s booking appointments, and we're really going to clean up in this week and next week all those people over 65. Okay, so what areas concern you right now? Like you mentioned a couple of communities there, like Dawson Creek, where there have been outbreaks. But when looking around, are there some hot spots where you think we're, we're going to need to do something here? Well, Fraser Health uh, and Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, Vancouver Coastal Health, we've seen a reduction in some case positivity uh, in the last week, and that's a, that's a good thing. But really all through the metro Vancouver area, in particular, uh, Surrey, North Delta, Abbotsford, other communities in Fraser Health. But our concern isn't just cases, it's hospitalization. It's the fact that the cases we saw a couple of weeks ago and last week, more of those cases are ending up in hospital. So it's our key COVID hospitals in Metro Vancouver that we're watching really on an hourly basis. That's Surrey, Abbotsford, Royal Columbian in the Fraser Health Authority, that's Vancouver General Hospital, and Lionsgate has been a consistent issue because uh, it doesn't have uh, as big an ICU, and we've had significant cases on the North Shore. Uh, Let's talk about the restaurant industry here for a second. Uh, Clearly, there has been a problem in restaurants where it seemed like for a long time we heard from health authorities that no, you could go out safely to eat at a restaurant as long as you follow the rules. But with that modeling information released last week, there is there were more outbreaks at restaurants, and I think that surprised a lot of people. Was it safe all that time to be allowing people to eat at restaurants? Oh, there are a lot of restaurants, of course, uh, an enormous number of restaurants, more so than, say, fitness facilities. And there were some fitness facilities there on that list, too. But I think what we've learned and what we're where we are now in April and at the end of March was that things that we could do safely some months ago, we can't do now. That there's more transmission of COVID-19. There are the variants, which um, some of which transmit more easily. And this is true of a lot of what we do. People say, well, we could do it last October. We can't do it now. Or we could do it last summer. We can't do it now. It's because COVID-19 is a greater risk now in general and in specific locations. So that's why um, Dr. Henry took the decision on March the 29th to end uh, in, in restaurant dining for the present period because we were seeing starting to see transmission in those places. And, uh, and that transmission, obviously, is coming down as there's no in-restaurant in dining. 
Are, are you worried about flights, though, still arriving here with sick people from international destinations? That's been a story that we've heard in the last 24 hours. Well, I'm concerned about that. And you see those on the list from some locations of flights where there were COVID-19 exposures. But just as importantly are flights within Canada. And some of our most significant transmission in the last month has come from other parts of Canada. And that's why I think it's important that everyone resolves themselves to only travel for essential reasons. And that just doesn't mean people coming here from Quebec and Ontario. It means us going there as well. I think that this is a period where we're moving through to the May long weekend where we're going to be immunizing more people by the May long weekend, close to some, certainly by the end of May, more than 60% of people will have received their first dose of COVID-19 vaccine. So in this period when there's high risk and high transmission, we have to follow public health guidance. And as you know, later this week, there'll be some, uh, some rules put in to back that up, but it doesn't change what we all need to do, which is if it's not for work, and if it's not for an essential family reason for, uh, that one could, might imagine, but a truly essential one, not that I need to get away, then, uh, then uh, one could travel. But for non-essential travel, we can't do it now because uh, we want to contain and stop the spread of COVID-19 around our province and, within, and between our province and other provinces. What do we classify, though, as non-essential travel? Like, what about work? What about, you know, grocery shopping? Like, what do we, what do we call non-essential mm-hmm. Well, um, I don't think grocery shopping is travel. You're going to get an essential item. That, so that's not, we wouldn't describe that as travel. That's certainly movement, but that's not travel. You're not, uh, I, I mean, going away uh, on any kind of vacation trip, weekend trip, any trip that isn't directly linked to your work or say, I don't know, say uh, uh, a mother or father is, is ill and needs your support or uh, it, those are things that are essential travel. I think we know what they are. Any trip that's really getting away, that's vacation, that's leisure of any kind, uh, that, 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 that we have to do outside in our own neighborhoods right now. And it's not for a long time, but it's through the May long weekend that we need to really focus on us. All right. What about traveling to another city or another municipality to go for a walk in a park? You know, traveling across health regions to go to a, a nice park like Golden Ears or something? Well, I, I, I think in this time, I mean, we're going to be able to do that. Golden Years is going to be here in the summer. I, I think right now it's important to stay local. And, you know, um, these rules are not going to be, uh, are not intended to stop people from doing normal things. I live really close to Boundary Road. I live in near Joy Skytrain Station. People know where that is listening to you. And uh, obviously um, we walk in Central Park all the time, right? And technically that's both 10 minutes away by foot and uh, in another health authority. So we don't need to be, um, and we're not intending to be ridiculous here, but what we don't want people to do is go from one area to another area that's not needed right now. And uh, and uh, I think people understand that, that it's uh, time to be outside, yes, but be outside in your own community, in your own neighborhood, um, and staying safe. And again, all of the places that you can go, all of them will be available to go to uh, this summer. Uh, but what is happening right now is a high level of transmission of COVID-19. And just as we, through vaccination and through our own actions, us and the vaccines against COVID-19, we're going to be able to reduce the spread. This is not the time to get sick with a virus that is vicious to people. And I think if I can leave you with anything, Simi, it's what I've heard from healthcare workers and what I've heard from people 
who've either helped people who are sick with COVID-19 or got sick with COVID-19. This is a vicious virus, and this is not the time to get sick with it. All right. Thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate that. Hey, right. Anytime. Take care, Simi. Stay safe. You too. That's Adrian Dix, BC's health minister, talking about the new regulations, the wake-up call, really, to people that we need to be doing more to shut down the number of COVID-19 cases. This is Mornings with Simi. New BC COVID-19 travel restrictions are coming into effect this Friday. We're going to hear more about them. And what we heard from the Premier earlier this week is that drivers would be subject to, quote, random audits not unlike roadside checks or counterattack during the Christmas season, although there has been some clarification on that. I think we're talking more like periodic roadblocks, maybe set up in places like BC Ferries or Highway 1 leaving the Lower Mainland, because the point is to discourage recreational travel. But what does that mean? What does non-essential travel mean? Joining us now is Mike Farnworth, BC's Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. Can you clarify this a bit more for us then? So if people are going to their recreational property at Harrison from Vancouver, is that a no-go? Um, they're still... So we're looking at uh, the, res- the restrictions, the travel restrictions being based on health, uh, health authorities. And so what we're going to see, and we're very mindful of the issue around Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal, for example... Um, because, you know, the interchange between the two is, is, is quite significant. So they'll be treated as a region. And what we're wanting to do is to discourage people from going from the lower mainland, for example, to the island or the lower mainland to the interior uh, and northern B.C. Uh, within uh, the health authority, you know, yes, you, can, you would be able to, to move around. But the reality is this. Uh, even though you can, uh, the advice from the, uh, the provincial health officers is, is don't. Uh, is stay in, in your own stay in your own community. Um, if you're on the North Shore, stay on the North Shore. Uh, but there's not going to be you know random or there's not going to be uh, uh, roadside um, um, counterattack style um, you know uh, checks uh, in uh, in the Lower Mainland. But we're looking at uh, as we said at uh, at those points where you would go from you know the Lower Mainland up into the interior, for example. So you're looking you know like Highway One or the Coquihalla, or the uh, the Hope Princeton, or ferry terminals, for example. Okay, so what would those checks look like then? Are we talking about the ability to ticket people who are going and they shouldn't be going? Well, those are the details that are, are being worked out right now uh, with discussions with, uh, with police agencies, uh, and those are the details that we'll be able to announce uh, later later in the week. Um, the idea is, is not to punish people, but to get people to realize, uh, you know, the spread of COVID can be limited, um, particularly with variants, by people staying um, close to their own area. And so that means discouraging travel, particularly recreational travel, especially at this time of the year, um, you know, as, as the weather's getting better, um, and particularly in the run-up to, uh, to the May long weekend, is to, to stay close to home. Um, because as we uh, right now are vaccinating about 1% of the population a day, uh, 30% of British Columbians have already received at least one vaccination shot. So by the May long weekend, you're looking at probably close to 60% of British Columbians being vaccinated. That's going to have a significant impact. And so it's these next um, uh, few weeks in that run up to, to the May day uh, or to, to the May long weekend that are, that are crucial. Uh, and we want people not to travel uh, to different parts of the province. 
What have you heard from police agencies? Or have they expressed any reluctance to you? Because we heard that was a big issue in Ontario when this topic came up. Yeah, we're not contemplating anything uh, in the way that Ontario has gone, uh, has gone about things. We're not looking at uh, new powers, for example. We're looking at a, using existing, uh, existing uh, uh, measures that are in place, and that's why we're in discussions uh, with police um, and, uh, and ferries, for example, as well, uh, in terms of how um, you know, the new measures uh, will take place, how they would be uh, enforced, and how, we would, uh, and how they would be uh, implemented. Uh, and that's why uh, we have been able to give the uh, full details uh, um, at the end of the week. Uh, the bottom line is this. This is not going to impact, for example, people going to work. It's not going to impact commuters. It's not going to impact uh, you know, health appointments. This is primarily about uh, recreational travel. Why aren't we seeing more enforcement then? Because uh, this is a concern I think a lot of people have had in light of all these videos that we saw on the weekend of people gathering outdoors when they shouldn't be, you know, the Sunset Beach situation yesterday. When you see those, are you concerned at all about any kind of lack of enforcement? When I see those, I get frustrated just like everybody else. But I also know the police uh, and the other enforcement bodies are doing their job. There's been close to 1,800 tickets uh, have been issued for a variety of offenses. And in a number of cases, there have been, you know, additional charges that, that people are, are facing. Um, I fully expect there will be enforcement. But again, um, a lot of it is, you know, we want people to get the message. And it's in terms of uh, enforcement, police make those operational decisions and they make uh, the decisions of when to, to write a ticket, for example, or not to write a ticket. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a very challenging situation, but they deal with it. How many people are actually paying those tickets, though? Well, right now, um, you know, when a ticket is issued, you do have the right to dispute that ticket, uh, and many people are, uh, and that's not surprising. Um, but having said that, um, if you, within 30 days, if you've not disputed the ticket, one, it is you are deemed then guilty. Uh, that ticket is sent to a collection agency. Um, right now, uh, as I know you're aware, we are in session in Victoria, mm-hmm. and I will be bringing forth measures uh, that will uh, enhance or um, the ability to uh, debt collect uh, any outstanding fines related to COVID-19. And those measures uh, will be uh, introduced uh, in, the, uh, in the next couple of weeks. Okay, so there's more to come on the enforcement issue, because I think that gets very dis- disheartening for people, right? When they see this happening and they feel like there's no follow-through on this. Absolutely. Um, it is very frustrating. And, you know, you, you see something, uh, someone thumbing their nose and, and you get angry. I get angry, I'm just like most British Columbians do, because most British Columbians are doing the right thing. It is always this, it's a small minority. But I can tell you, um, you know, as I said, there's been 1,800, uh, over 1,800 tickets issued, um, and there will be additional enforcement measures to ensure that those tickets, uh, those fines, are in fact collected. Okay, so then just to be clear here, when it comes to the restrictions that are going to be given in more detail on Friday, if you're a commuter, if you're you know, doing your everyday stuff, grocery shopping, all of that, you, you're going to be okay. Absolutely. This is not about Boundary Road, for example, which is the border between, you know, um, Vancouver Coastal and uh, Fraser Health. This is not about that at all. This is about, um, you know, people on the lower mainland saying, oh, we're going to go to the island or we're going to go up to the interior. 
the reality is now is not the time to do that. Uh, and that's why, you know, we've been working with the provincial health officer that the, these restrictions are necessary at this time. Um, and I can see them being in place, for example, you know, until, the, uh, until just after the long weekend. That's my hope. Uh, and, at, and, and if we do that and follow this, then with the rate of vaccination that's been taking place, we'll be in a much better situation for people, you know, uh, for the July long weekend to actually be able to go and, 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 and travel more. Right. The ferry situation, do you think we should have done that sooner? Um, the ferries, um, we've been working with ferries um, and, you know, the situation on the island has been has been has been pretty good, but we're at that time of year now where people want to uh, to get out and want to go uh, to different parts of the of the province. And the ferries, um, you know, it's a logical place to be able to check um, and say, "Hey, this is recreational travel." No, um, you know, uh, you're not going to the island. So people will be turned away then. That's those are the kinds of things that we're working on right now as to exactly how, um, you know, enforcement and how uh, things will, 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 will take place. But the bottom line is this, is that there are a number of, of measures that BC Ferries will be able to take that we're working with them on in terms of restricting travel uh, to the island. Obviously not for commercial uh, operations such as, you know, transport trucks and things like that or people, um, you know, going for, for medical appointments. All right, Mr. Farnworth, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. That's Mike Farnworth, BC's Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General, clarifying a lot of what we've been hearing this week about, you know, travel restrictions, what's going to happen. There's more information coming Friday, but that certainly, I think, went a long way towards clearing up some of the confusion around it about what it means to be non-essential travel and how that's going to work. And, of course, there are more details to come.